Hello, my name is Charlie Taylor. I'm a ninth grader here at Emmaus Church, and I'll be reading two different passages today for the scripture, starting in Esther 4, 12 through 16. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for a time such as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. The next passage is Matthew 6, 31 through 33. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly fathers know that you need them. Be, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of the scriptures. I got to pray. Father, I'm not even really sure what to say right now. Something has brought tears to my eyes. And so I pray for uh, your presence in my voice. And I pray for your control in these words. And I am just so grateful for these people who have who let me speak. here to hear a word from you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for what it's meant in my life. And that it's a very tender and precious place. So God, let us leave today uh, with rejoicing that you are here. And did these tears just be what they are? A representation of hearts that want to connect with you. And God, right now, I don't want to be overcome by that. I want to be able to speak clearly. And so I ask that you give me that peace. 
and that you give us ears to hear what you have to say today. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I truly am so, so grateful to be here today. And uh, just the worship, whatever, I just feel a little overwhelmed. Uh, And what I wanted to share with you today and how I started this out was actually that I have a severe case of holy envy. Have you ever heard of that term, holy envy? I borrowed it from a woman, uh, an author named Barbara Brown Taylor in her book, Holy Envy. And I'm ringing. All right. Uh, In her book, uh, there's a premise in it that there are things in other faith traditions that uh, we see and we admire and we think, you know, it'd be really nice. There's something that I could learn from that and I might be able to bring it into my own faith experience. And that has certainly been the case for me. I um, have had a case of holy envy for all things Jewish. Somebody may need to bring me a Kleenex. Um, a case of all things Jewish. I love the Jewish faith and the Jewish tradition. And from the time I was a little girl, I heard those stories in Sunday school, you know, about God's chosen people. I love you, Brooke. Thank you, ma'am. All right, Jason, I'm assuming this is yours. Okay, I'll wash it. I heard those stories in Sunday school, and I heard about God's chosen people. And I thought, how cool would it be to be the chosen people of God? To be able to say, it was my great, 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 great grandfather ancestor who walked through the Red Sea. And it was my great, 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 you know, ancestor who was there when uh, they picked up the manna off the ground and ate it. It was my great, great, great you know, ancestors who saw Moses come down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, how cool it would be to be the chosen people of God. I envied that, you know, title. And then I was in high school, and I was introduced to the musical Fiddler on the Roof. I love that musical. It is my all-time favorite musical. Thank you. Oh, Y'all don't have any confidence in me now. (laughs) Uh, That musical is a powerful one to me. You know, it's the music is terrific and the story is profound to me. Maybe that's why I like it so well, because it's not just a piece of musical theater fluff, right? It's got something substantial to it. And when I think about things that are Jewish, I think That's what I think about, that everything in their religion and in their way of life is significant. It has some kind of weight. You know, in the the musical, Tevye, the main character, says, you know, everything about our lives, even the, the tassels on our prayer shawls, the way we bake our bread, everything is intended to help us connect to God and to one another, remember who we are before him. And I, I kind of look for that. I long for that. There's also a Jewish author, his name is Chaim Potok, and he writes about the Jewish experience in America right after the Second World War, particularly with people uh, who are um, Orthodox Jews or conservative Jews. And I realized for the first time that there's a lot of similarities in people who are uh, fundamentalist in whatever religion. 
that a, a fundamentalist, you know, Jew, if you will, Christian or Muslim, have a lot of similar characteristics, particularly as they approach the scripture. And there's a scene in um, the, uh, one of his novels uh, where there's a, a Jewish holiday called Shavuot, where uh, it's supposed to be a celebration of the spring harvest, but they've also used it as a time in which they remember uh, the gift of the Torah to the Jews. And in this scene, these men are dancing around their synagogue, holding on to the scroll of the, the Torah and just like loving the fact that God and celebrating the fact that God has given them the gift of this, his word to them. And, and there's something about that that just kind of appeals to me. I love the Jewish scripture. And they made a whole holiday out of celebrating, you know, their scripture. That's great. Now, the Jews know how to have a celebration. They know how. They've got these, all these wonderful, throughout the year, these uh, festivals and celebrations. Their holidays are actually holy days. You know that God commanded coming up, there's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That God actually commanded a day when, you're, when people are supposed to go, we're sinners, and God's forgiving us, and so we have to, you know, ask forgiveness for God, and we need to make things right with our neighbors. What a terrific holiday. And then there's Passover, which is one of my favorite holidays. Uh, I was really fortunate, excuse me, to have a Jewish friend who invited uh, my husband and I to participate in her Passover Seder, and it became a really important tradition in our lives. We went for a decade plus every single year celebrating that uh, festival or that, that meal with them and sitting around the table, and every single piece of food had some kind of significance, and we sang songs, and we read uh, blessings in Hebrew, and we recounted the story from the scripture of God rescuing the Israelites out of Egypt. I love the Jewish scriptures as well. But you know, in the last couple of years, I've been wrestling with how do we as Christians apply those scriptures to our lives? Because honestly, I feel like sometimes they get really misapplied and damage results from us as, as followers of Jesus. So how do we do that? And I found a resource that I really like. It's um, a man named Peter Enns, and his book is How the Bible Actually Works. And I like his perspective on this. He says, you know, the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is not so much an answer book as it is a question book. It's meant to raise questions for us, questions that have, you know, plagued people for centuries, millennia even, about how do we engage with God. It raises questions that we have, and then it gives us illustrations and examples that we might learn and apply from, that there's some bit of wisdom we might distill. And this uh, summer, we've been in a series looking at four books from the Jewish scripture. They are the book of Job, Jonah, Ruth. And today we're going to look at Esther. And all these books are kind of an odd assortment of books. One of them is a book of prophecy. Two of them are books of history. One of them is a book of uh, poetry, even. And Nick has uh, been sharing with us over the last couple of weeks how these books 
are unique. They're, they're very different, but they share something in common, and that is that they are very, very, uh, they have unique literary styles, very colorful, fanciful language, uh, brilliant stories, all right? And each one of them has a little pearl of wisdom, more than one probably, but uh, he talked to us about how the book of Job is like a tragedy from which we learn that, yes, life is full of suffering, but it's still worth living because God's in the mix. And then from the, the comedy of um, Jonah, we find the irony that God actually has an amazing sense of grace. His heart is for our enemies. Who knew, right? And then in the romance, as he put it, of Esther, I mean, anybody else want to get Nick up here to say hubba hubba again? <laughs> if you missed it, you should go back and look at it. Um, from the romance of Esther, we learned that God has this un unfailing loving kindness that challenges us to also be people who extend that loving kindness to our enemies and make them into our neighbors and our friends. All great pieces of wisdom. And so today we're going to be looking at the book of Esther, which I would say, you know, if uh, Job is a tragedy and um, Jonah a comedy and Ruth a romance, then the book of Esther is a melodrama. You know, the kind of story where uh, the evil is villain, he's, he's dastardly, and the hero is noble, and the heroine is, you know, pure and lovely, and, <coughs> pardon me, and they face an impossibly dire circumstance, and there's all sorts of, like, kind of crazy running arounds and machinations, and, uh, you know, there's some surprise reveals and twists in the plot, and at the end, the dastardly villain meets his just desserts, and the heroine and the hero, they overcome the odds because they are pure of heart and have great, you know, ingenuity, right? That's the story of Esther. The question is, why is it in the Bible? <clears throat> well, very simply, the story of Esther, it says right there in the book, it is an explanation of why the Jews celebrate a festival called Purim. Any of you ever been to a Purim festival? None? Me either. Okay. So I had to look up information about the festival of Purim, and it seems to be sort of a two-day mashup between Halloween and Mardi Gras. It's full of costumes and color and, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> candy and all kinds of celebration and drinking if you're so inclined. And uh, it's a great big party that is intended to celebrate a time when the, the Jews, as the underdogs, the tables turned and they got the upper hand for once. All right? And so the story is told, and, and during these uh, festivals and celebrations, it's not uncommon for people to put on a Purim play where they tell the story of Esther as a melodrama. And when the bad guy comes in, everybody boos. And when the hero comes in, everybody cheers. And when the heroine comes in, everybody sighs. You know, it's that kind of engaged sort of story. 
And uh, I'm going to tell it to you today, but just so that you first uh, understand where this fits into the, the whole Jewish scheme of uh, Jewish history, the book of Esther comes at the end of their books of history in the Bible. And um, I'm going to try in three minutes or less to sum up that history. Uh, the Jews started out with uh, Abraham who was promised by God that he would be a great nation. And then Abraham had one son, who then had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Did I say that right? Abraham, Isaac, Isaac had Jacob and Esau. And Jacob is the one who wrestled with God, and he got his name changed to Israel. And so he had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. They lived in the land that God had promised, but there was a famine there. They moved down to Egypt, and in Egypt they lived for 400 years where eventually they became enslaved until God sent them Moses. And Moses led them back to the promised land on the way, stopped by Mount Sinai, picked up the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments really just being the table of contents, the index to a whole big long set of laws, the first of which was you shall have no other gods but me, right? And the Jews had, uh, the Israelites had a difficult time with this because they'd just come from the land of Egypt, full of all kinds of gods, and now they're headed to another land that is full of more gods. And so they struggled with this. They went through periods where they did a pretty good job, but then they would fall into worshiping other idols, or worshiping idols. <clears throat> and uh, then God would send a nation in to oppress them. They would cry out to God. He would send them a leader who would rescue them. And they went through this cycle over and over with some judges and then with kings like Saul and David and Solomon. But eventually God said, that's enough. I know you have built this great Jerusalem with this beautiful temple to me, but I'm done. I'll allow the Babylonians to come in. They will conquer you. And this time, they won't leave you in place. They're going to take you away into Babylon, into captivity. And so that's what happens. Daniel's one of those people who gets taken away into captivity. And they live there for, you know, roughly 70 years or so. And then the Babylonians get taken over by the Persians. The Persians allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem, rebuild their wall, rebuild their temple. But a lot of Jews choose to stay and become assimilated into the culture of the uh, Persians. And so even though we've got these, and that's where Esther takes place. So even though you've got these Jews who've returned to Jerusalem, they've rebuilt the temple, they've rebuilt the wall, they have a governor kind of king. But from this point on in history, they are always a vassal state. Because the Persians get taken over by the Greeks, and the Greeks get taken over by the Romans. And through all this time and all this history, the Jews never are on top. They are always an oppressed underdog. <clears throat> so that's the context <clears throat> that the story of Esther is in. People who have been oppressed for a really long time, and they're wondering where God is and how they should live. So here's the story of Esther, <clears throat> in case you didn't know it. Uh, there's a king named Xerxes, and he uh, is displaying his power, his wealth, his magnificence to all the world, and he holds parties, and some of these parties go on for days. He's having a seven-day rager, <clears throat> literally. They're told you can drink as much as you want, and so he's having this seven-day uh, uh, party, and at the end of it, he decides he not only wants to display his wealth, he wants to display his wife. 
And so the wife's having, Queen Vashti is having a banquet of her own, and she gets the word that the king has commanded her to come and show herself off to all of his nobles, and she says no. The king is furious. The king gathers all his wise men together and says, what are we going to do about this? And they're like, this is bad because if our wives hear what she just said to the king, our lives will be miserable. This can't stand. You should banish the queen. And he says, good idea. So he does. He banishes Queen Vashti. And then he realizes, oh, no, I don't have a queen anymore. And so he gathers his uh, people together again. He says, what should I do? I don't have a queen anymore. And they said, we've got an idea. You should go out to all of the, the empire and bring in the most beautiful maidens in the land. And you should bring them to the palace and put them through a year's worth of beauty treatments. And then you should sleep with each one of them. Test drive. Find the one that is going to make you happy. The one that pleases you the most and make her the queen. And he says, great idea. <laughs> so he does that. The woman who pleases him the most is Esther. Esther becomes the new queen. But Esther has a secret. Nobody knows that her real name is Hadassah. Did you even know it? Her real name is Hadassah. She's a Jew. She's an orphan, and she has been raised by her cousin Mordecai, who, once, who has made her swear she would never, ever reveal the fact that she was a Jew. And so Esther has become the queen, and she's risen up, and she's living this life of luxury, and Mordecai keeps an eye on her from a distance. He likes to walk up and down outside the courtyard of the harem, where he has developed a relationship with the harem guards, and so he, you know, gets the, the, the buzz from the, from the castle and relays messages back and forth from Esther, <clears throat> and one day while he's out there, he just happens to overhear two guards talking, and they are planning an assassination plot against the king. So Mordecai tells the guard, the guard tells Esther, Esther tells the king, and the king is saved. And he writes it all down in, in the court, you know, records, and uh, goes on with his life. And Esther, things are good for her, except here comes the big boo. There's a man in the court whose name is Haman. And Haman, that's right, boo. Haman is evil. Haman is heinous. Haman is selfish and greedy and petty. And he has thinks so much of himself because he's the king's advisor that he got the king to issue an order that said everybody's got to bow down to him, Haman, whenever he walks out in public. But guess who won't do that? <clears throat> the noble Mordecai. All right? He refuses to bow to Haman. And so uh, this gets really under Haman's skin. And uh, he goes uh, to, he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew. Somebody rats Mordecai out because he's kind of been keeping it on the lowdown, it sounds like, too. And so somebody finds out that Mordecai is a Jew. They tell Haman, and Haman says, you know what? I hate this guy so much. I'm not only going to do away with him. I'm going to annihilate all the Jews in all the empire of, of uh, Persia. And his wife and his family and friends who are sitting around listening to brag about how much power he's got go, that's a great idea, Haman. You should do that, Haman. How are you going to do that, Haman? And he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take these lots 
They're, they're called poor. The, we think they're kind of sort of like dice. And I'm going to shake these up, and I'm going to, however they land, this is the day. Ready, set, roll. And he decides that the day that the dice fall on is going to be the 13th day of Adar, roughly about 12 months from the time that he rolled the dice. They say, great. And he says, I'm going to go to the king tomorrow, and I'm going to see that this happens. So he does the next day. He goes to the king, and he says, oh, king, we have a people living among us that you do not want here. They are strange. They keep to themselves. They have weird traditions. You know what? I think they're a danger to us. I would be happy to even pay you for the privilege. I feel so strongly about it. I'll pay you 10,000 talents in order to wipe them out. The king says, hey, you know what? Keep your money. Keep your money. Do what you want with the people. And let's drink. And uh, Haman says, well, you know, we need a law to establish this. King says, fine, here, take my ring. Yes, you can use the royal horses. Send the message out, whatever. Let's drink. And the, um, so Haman issues this uh, edict that says on the 13th day of Adar, all the Jews are to be, and it says this, Killed, annihilated, and destroyed. All three words. Okay, we're for sure going to wipe them out. Well, the Jews among in the you know, nation grieve, weep, wail. It's a terrible uh, edict that's just come out. And Mordecai, he puts himself in sackcloth and ashes. And Esther sees him out there in the street. She says, what's going on? She sends a message. And he, uh, Mordecai sends a message back and he says, I know I told you that you had to not say anything, but you have got to go to the king and you've got to plead for your people. And she said, are you crazy? She sends a message back. That's suicide for me to do that. And he sends back the passage that was read for us. And he says, you know what? You have got to do this. You have got to go to the king. Is it possible that it's for such a time as this that you have been put in this position? And Esther says, okay, I want you to go away, pray for me, fast for me, and in three days I'll go to the king. And the third day she goes to the king. She dresses on her very best. She waits. Will the king extend his scepter or not? The king extends his scepter. He says, you look lovely. Come on on in. What can I do for you? Up to half my kingdom, it's yours. You can have, and she says, all I want is for you to come to, a, you and Haman, to come to a uh, banquet that I prepared in your honor. He says, sure, we'll do that. So the next day, they're going to go to the banquet. Haman now is so full of himself, and he goes home, and he says, I am so in now. I not only am good friends with the king, I am good friends with the queen. We're having a little private dinner. But, oh, that guy Mordecai, I don't think I can wait until we obliterate all the Jews. And his family says, you know what you should do? You should build a, a pole 75 feet high. And you should hang Mordecai on it. He says, that's a great idea. I'm sure if I ask the king, he'll give me whatever I want. So he goes the next morning to the king to ask for that very thing. But the tables are about to turn. Because that night, the king had to trouble sleeping. And so he brought out his books, his records of all the things that have happened in his uh, reign. And he comes across the, the entry where Mordecai saves his life. And he starts thinking, did we ever do anything for Mordecai? And the people said, no, we never did. And so he's thinking about that. He's still pondering it the next morning when Haman walks in. 
And so he's thinking about this, and Haman's thinking about hanging Mordecai. And before he can say anything, the king looks at him and goes, Haman, what should I do? What should be done for the man the king wishes to honor? Well, Haman obviously knows it's him that's going to be honored, right? And so he says, oh, well, you should put them, dress them in one of your royal uh, robes and then put them on one of your royal horses, you know, the one with the fancy pom-poms on their heads, and you should have one of your nobles lead the man through the streets of town proclaiming this is what's done for the man the king wishes to honor. King says, great idea. Do that for Mordecai. And so now Haman is thoroughly embarrassed. He's thoroughly humiliated, and he still has to go to the queen's banquet that day. So he shows up at the banquet. The banquet lasts two days. They're having a good time eating and drinking, and the king turns to Esther and says, all right, what is it you really want? You can have anything, up to half my kingdom. And Esther says, I just want you to save my people. They have been sold to be killed, destroyed, and annihilated. And the king says, who would dare to do this? And she famously says, this adversary, this enemy, this vile Haman. And the king says, what? And Haman's terrified. The king is furious. King stomps off into the garden. Haman falls on the, on the couch where the queen is, and she, I'm sure he's begging for mercy. King comes back and is like, what? He's going to molest my wife right in front of me? And one of the harem guards says, hey, you know what? Haman has prepared a 75-foot pole to hang Mordecai on. Just saying. And the king says, great idea. And he hangs uh, Haman on it instead. And so, happy ending? Not quite. Because there's a little fly in the ointment. The king has made an edict. And apparently the edict cannot be changed. So now, Mordecai and Esther, and Mordecai's been put in Haman's place as the king's advisor. Now they say, king, you've got to do something about this. He says, what should we do? And they said, issue another edict that gives the Jews the right to assemble and protect themselves against those who would destroy them. King says, fine, here you go. There's my ring. Yes, you can use the royal horses. Send the message out to the whole empire. <clears throat> And that's what they do. And now there's great rejoicing in the land because the Jews are going to be allowed to protect themselves on the 13th day of Adar. Here's the rest of the story. <clears throat> 13th day of Adar comes. The Jews kill in the city of Susa, the capital, 500 people, including Haman's 10 sons. Out in the province, we don't know yet. King comes to Esther and goes, we good? 500 people dead. That work? She says, well, actually, could we have another day? We have some unfinished business. We got to hang Haman's kids on the pole. And then there are some other people that still need to be destroyed. And he says, sure, whatever. Knock yourself out. So they kill 300 more people in the city of Susa. And in the provinces, 75,000 people, the enemies of the Jews, are destroyed. Now, there's a day of great feasting and celebration among the Jews. 
Because for once, the tables are turned and the people who are on the bottom came out on top. <clears throat> and this is the story of Purim. How for once, the Jews who have been so oppressed had a chance to come out on top. Now, I can understand why this is an important story in Jewish history. But what in the world does this have to say to us as Christians? My recollection of Sunday school, we stopped that story. When Esther went to the king and, you know, the people were saved and... Um, <clears throat> then uh, Haman is done away with. You know, we stopped it right there. And the takeaway was, you should be brave, like Esther is brave. When you're in a position of power and privilege, you should use your power and privilege to help people. And that is a solid piece of wisdom. But I was curious, how do Jews today use this story? What do they do with it? And so once again, I looked at my uh, friend, Mr. Peter Enns, and he has a podcast called, um, what's it called, Nick? The Bible for Normal People. And uh, Nick uh, gave me this uh, resource, and he interviews on this podcast a professor from uh, Yeshiva uh, University, Yeshiva, sorry, University, a man named Dr. Aaron Kohler. And he asked him that question, how do you use this story today? And uh, Dr. Kohler said, you know what? Esther raises a great question. Remember, Bible is a question book, not an answer book. Raises a great question. And that question is, how do you live faithfully in exile? What does that look like? And that, to me, was an interesting question. How do you live faithfully in exile? And he, he pointed out, you know, Esther's not the only book in the Old Testament that talks about how you live in exile. And he said, you also have the book of Daniel. Daniel lived in exile as well. And Daniel's response to living in exile is kind of different. Now, both Daniel and Esther are perceived as heroes of faith, okay? But Daniel's response to living in exile was he remained kosher. He wouldn't eat the king's food. He continued to practice his religion very, very faithfully, very openly. And despite that fact, he rose through the ranks of power in the Babylonian and then later in the Persian Empire because of his great wisdom and his integrity. He was valued. And not only was he valued, those leaders began to value the God of Daniel and tell other people, you know what, you should worship that God. He's the like God of gods. Esther, God's not ever even mentioned in the book, but we still have this presumption that Esther, within Esther, that God is somewhere in the picture. He's kind of hard to tell because, you know, we've been living here, out hanging out here by ourselves in exile for a while, and it's hard. We think he's somewhere in the picture, and we have that sense from Mordecai when he says, who knows, maybe it's such a time as this that you're put here, right? And, he, and, and Esther requests prayer and fasting on her behalf, but she's changed her name to a Jewish, or rather to a Persian goddess, Ishtar. She's clearly, uh, you know, well living inside of the, the Persian culture. Both of these are responses, even faith responses to what it means, what it looks like to live in exile. 
I love this idea that the scriptures raise up for us a question and give us some illustrations, and then we've got to wrestle with it to determine what we're going to do. Again, what's the application to us as Christians? What's the application to us as Christians? Do you feel like you live in exile? I think because we live in the United States of America, that's supposed to be a Christian nation, we forget that fact. But the truth is, the New Testament refers to us as people who are pursuing the kingdom of God first. That that's where our citizenship is. And that the New Testament is really uh, just like this. Um, Let me backtrack for a second. That God uh, sent us Jesus, right? And Jesus came. He was our Messiah. That's where we deviate from the Jews. And so he sent us uh, Jesus. And Jesus showed us what God's love is like and who he is. And then he went back to heaven and he promised he would return. And so we are, in fact, people living in an unfulfilled promise. And in, in, in the idea of the New Testament, we are actually people living in the kingdom of God, but in a foreign empire. And that's how the New Testament talks about Christians. And so I think there's a lot that the book of Esther and this whole question about how do you live in, as a faithful person in a foreign empire. I think we have that tension. Who are we going to be more like? Are we going to be more like Daniel, where we live very separate kind of lives? Are we going to be more like Esther, where we live very assimilated lives? Or is there maybe something in between? I think that what happens when we live in the tension of that place, we're not quite sure what does it look like to live faithfully? Does it mean that I have to live in a bunker and, you know, be a Christian who marries a Christian, has Christian kids who go to Christian uh, high schools and colleges, and we only read Christian romance novels? Or is it that, you know, we are so, you know, clearly involved in our culture, we want to be uh, relevant, we want to be uh, contemporary, we want to be uh, cool, so that people know that that's what Jesus is like? You know, Is there a right or is there a wrong way there? It's a great question. I think that the thing I actually wrestle with more is it's not one or the other, right? It's living in the daily choices of how do I make a faithful choice to do what God wants me to do? How do I do what Jesus says of pursuing the kingdom of God and his righteousness every day? How do I do that? I feel like Jesus gave us a bit of the answer, and it's a little bit surprising. Because when he said, you know, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your clothes and all that kind of stuff. Instead, pursue first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you as well. But have you noticed that sometimes that's not true? That the things I really think I need and that I really, really want, I don't get them. That the times when I want like Daniel and the lions and I want God to show up, I want him to heal somebody. I want him to provide for somebody. I want him to speak so I can hear him. 
I want him to fix my problem now, right? We live in this time where sometimes it feels like God's not in the picture the way I want him to be. And so I'm not always sure how to continue to live faithfully and make faithful choices and responses. And so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, after he says, you know, seek first the kingdom and it's going to be added to you. And I'm going, are you sure about that? He says, keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. And sometimes I feel like what we think that means is that I need to keep banging on God's door until he gives me that surprise reveal, until he gives me that amazing coincidence. And sometimes we do get that, but he never promises it. What he does promise, and what I think Jesus is talking about when he says, seek, ask, and knock, he says, seek, ask, and knock for the gift God is promising to give you. He's promising to give you his Holy Spirit. And so now you actually have a third choice. Is it the bunker? Is it the assimilation? Or is it developing a sense of keeping in step with the Spirit so that in every situation you can make a wise choice led by a Spirit who is produced in you the quality of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And if I bring that into a situation, the character of God himself in me, if I bring that into a situation, the choice that I make, whether it's to separate this time or to be involved this time, it will be a righteous, holy choice. That's how I live faithfully. While I'm in this in-between, because the truth is, God didn't leave us alone. He is still in the picture, and he's in the picture through the gift of his spirit. The challenge is, it's a long haul. How do I keep on living faithfully, continuing to connect with the spirit in my life? Well, I think this would be a great time to borrow another page from our Jewish friend's playbook. Tradition. You know, the Jews have these traditions that they practice and they keep and they retell these stories over and over again because by recounting what God has done, they're able to have faith for what God will do in their future, right? Traditions. But you know, Christians, we don't have so many of those. Jesus didn't really leave us with that many. I think it's like a little handful that I would summarize this way. He left us with the uh, ritual of baptism. He left us with the practice of prayer and doing good, of loving God so much that we do good to our neighbor and to our enemy. And then finally, he left us with a celebration. He left us with this very simple commemorative meal where we, in bread and wine, we remember the love that Jesus had for us. And Jesus told, and I want you to keep on doing it until he comes, right? He's given us these very simple traditions, if you will, that we can pick up and we can take them anywhere and be at home and maintain that faith. I think that's why I gave it to us. In the book of uh, Hebrews in the New Testament, I'm almost done. In the book of Hebrews, which is actually a New Testament book, 
people are living, the Christians there are living scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They are literally in exile and under a time of persecution. And they're thinking, you know what? Maybe this wasn't a good idea. Jesus is taking so long to come back. And this is really hard. We're not sure it's worth it. And the author of Hebrews challenges them on this. And he says, you know what? The way of Jesus is the best way. It's the best way to live. You've got to keep meeting together. You've got to keep challenging each other to do good. You've got to fix your eyes on Jesus and recount to one another the things that he has done, the things that he is doing, and remember, he will be faithful. He will keep on doing these things. Fix your eyes on him. The way of Jesus, of love and righteousness, is the best way to live this life regardless of where you have to do it or how long you have to wait. Esther raises a really great question. How do you live while you're waiting? How do you live faithfully while you're waiting? How do you keep on living faithfully while you're waiting? I've shared a few of my ideas on it, but what really matters is that you wrestle with it that you determine for yourself how, as I face the situations of my life, am I going to choose the way of righteousness and the way of love? How will you do it? It's a question. And I want to thank Esther for raising it for us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, um, as the creator of the universe, as sovereign over all history, we admit that we have doubts and fears, and with those come some pretty bad behaviors when we try to control the outcomes. But we also do recognize, we remember the times you have shown up for us in amazing, unbelievable ways. And we also thank you for the faithful people who have shown up to meet our needs, who have blessed us with their love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. May we be those people to each other and to the world. In Jesus' name.